Welcome. I'm Rose Aguilar, and this is your call. In 2002, the U.S. Postal Service selected Ethel Payne as one of four journalists it would honor on a commemorative postage stamp. The stamp was a black and white photograph of Ethel Payne, surrounded by the nameplate of the Chicago Defender, the prominent black newspaper where she was a reporter, and the headline of an article she wrote about the Montgomery bus boycott. If you've never heard of the trailblazing journalist and activist Ethel Payne, you're not alone. Her life as a tireless civil rights activist and journalist, has received very little attention beyond mentions and rare remembrances. After her death in 1991, a Washington Post editorial noted that, quote, had Ethel Payne not been black, she certainly would have been one of the most recognized journalists in American society, end quote. So what do we need to know about Ethel Payne, and what does the lack of recognition say about our historical memory and the forces that shape it? In his new biography, Eye on the Street, Ethel Payne, the first lady of the black press, James McGrath Morris charts the arc of Ethel Payne's life and career as a civil rights activist. James McGrath Morris is a biographer, columnist, and radio show host, and his book is Eye on the Struggle. He joins us from the studios of KUNM in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Hi, James. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Glad to be with you. Well, it's great to have you. I loved the book, and as I read it, I just kept wondering, as a journalist who follows journalism pretty closely, why had I never heard of Ethel Payne? When did you first learn about Ethel Payne? Well, you first uh, uh, escaped me from a moment of terror as a host who's known to read books to say you like it. makes me breathe easily. <laughs> um, I first... I, I, I was in a situation like many writers or reporters looking for my next story, and I assembled... I'd written a book about Joseph Bullitzer, a book about another editor, a book about uh, newspapers in American prisons, so journalism was kind of my beat. And I assembled a list of journalists thinking, who could I do next, ranging from Walter Cronkite to Ernie Pyle, and she showed up on that list, and I had a vague recollection. It wasn't a complete blank, I, I, but I didn't know what I knew about her. When I started doing the research, I discovered her extraordinary career and her, her significance. And I presumed, again, like most reporters, gee, somebody is working on this story. It's too good for me to have. And I discovered uh, when I contacted several archives that her personal papers had never been processed. What that means is they'd never, ever been opened. Hmm. And so I had this, this gem of a story that um, was waiting for me, and I wrote a proposal, and the publisher bought it, and I went right away to write it. You're very honest in your uh, acknowledgments and also in an article you wrote uh, just about what it was like for you as a white man to take on this journey. Can you talk a little bit about that? You say oh, that yeah. you also confronted your own prejudices. What was that like for you? Well, I was very nervous in taking on this because uh, here I am, um, and I jokingly quip quite regularly, a bald white man in his 60s writing about a black woman. Uh, but I also point out that she became famous for writing about a bald white president. <laughs> so um, I, humor was part of her life, and I used it at first. But I was really nervous. Uh, in a sense, I asked myself, who am I to write about her? Um, would a black woman be a better uh, author of this, or would a black male be a better author about this? And it struck me that biography is very much like painting a, a portrait, in that my view of her is obviously going to be different than had I grown up in Southside Chicago, or had I suffered from segregation. But that doesn't mean that my view would be uh, wrong in any respect. It's just going to be different. And I adopted a criteria of fairness that she adopted because in her life, she was the center of the story. When she was a Washington correspondent, D.C. was a deeply segregated city. So just trying to get a cab in the morning to go to the White House to ask the president a question was a challenge. So she realized she couldn't remove herself from the story of civil rights. And, and so instead of pursuing this kind of objectivity that we as journalists are trained to pursue, she dropped that pretense and instead adopted a measure of fairness. Mm. And if you read all of her stories, as I have, you'll find that you're struck by her fairness. I mean, she sits down and interviews segregationists like Senator Russell from Georgia, and her reporting is extraordinarily fair, although you can detect a kind of anger in the undertone. But it did seem like she was very curious about who these people are and why they have these views, and that's why she wanted to sit down with them. 
Yeah, and and it's also it's part of her having a journalistic sense. You know, what separates one journalist from another is often knowing that's a good story. So the one about Senator Russell is the 1952 Democratic Convention in Chicago. She could have easily interviewed Hubert Humphrey and other proponents of civil rights. Instead, she went into the lion's den and interviewed Russell and got an interview with him. You get the sense that when she got back to the newsroom, she kind of wanted to take a shower. Um, but at the same time, she wrote a you know, a very good story about how this man could hold these beliefs. So she really had two strikes against her, right? Not only was she black, but she was a black woman asking Eisenhower, and you can tell us this story in a couple minutes, very pointed questions about desegregation. I mean, she stood up and asked questions that white reporters were not asking. As a result, she would often become part of the story in the white newspaper because they had to pay attention to what she was asking about. You know, writing this book was very hard to try to reconstruct a world that younger people don't know or don't remember existed. The mere notion of a woman, a black woman, wandering around Washington, D.C. with a press pass, asking senators and presidents questions was unheard of at her time. In fact, there were senators who would simply refuse to answer because of her race or her gender. So to have the courage to stand up on a White House press conference and ask a challenging question of the president is not something that we should underestimate. But there's a magical moment in this affair. And what it is is that Ethel Payne, when she became a member of the of the White House press corps, she got, if you don't mind my using the, the term, a seat at the table. And she realized she couldn't just sit there and not ask tough questions. And when she began to ask these questions on civil rights issues, she then discovered that merely asking a question at a national press conference over the president put that topic on the national agenda. So the white medium, the mainstream medium, whether it's by their fault of choosing not to cover civil rights or whether it's because they just didn't think that was a story, were then forced to write about it because she had asked a question. And that's why we should never underestimate the importance of being, of having access, of being, having a seat at the table because merely asking a question of these powerful people cha- began to change, help change society. Right. You say that that was the main weapon she brought with her is to ask questions that others were not asking. And most of the time she got answers. She got answers up to the point that the president couldn't take it anymore. Right. I mean, he did have the power of deciding who was going to ask the questions. And it's it's almost like a novel in the sense that when he ceased to call on pain, because at this point the president was really getting angry with her questions, the seminal moment is when he, she asked a question, and these were really carefully worded. She worked with the NAACP, so it wasn't like a you know an unprepared question. She said, that it had been determined that the president had within his authority as the executive power to desegregate interstate bus travel. So why isn't he doing it? Well, he got really upset at this question, and he said, I'll do whatever I think is right, but I'm not going to basically kowtow to a special interest. Well, the room went dead quiet. Because by saying that, what he was saying is that a large part of the American population that was seeking its constitutional rights of equality was tantamount to a special interest, the equivalent of a farm lobby or something. Uh, He realized the answer got him in trouble. He realized Ethel Payne was not the person to call on. At that very moment is when things like the Montgomery bus boycott begins and other moments. So now being blocked from asking questions from people in power, she leaves Washington and goes to the front lines of the civil rights movement and reports from the South. And again, as a writer, it's really hard to try to explain to people, this is physically dangerous. You don't just go to the South and hop on a plane and grab a car. There are roads that she couldn't travel. There are places she shouldn't be alone. So she you know, took enormous risks to bring news from the front line to her readers. And the significance of that is that the Chicago Defender being subscribed to by African Americans around the country were getting reports from the front line that informed them but also activated them. And that's sort of the key of what was going on. I'm speaking with James McGrath Morris about his new book, Eye on the Struggle, Ethel Payne, the First Lady of the Black Press. If you've never heard of this trailblazing journalist, you're not alone. There hasn't really been much written about Ethel Payne. After her death in 1991, a Washington Post editorial noted that had Ethel Payne not been black, she certainly would have been one of the most recognized journalists in American society. So let's talk a little bit about Ethel's childhood. She was born in Chicago. 
Chicago in 1911. Her father was a Pullman porter, and because of his good job at the time for a black man, his salary and his tips. He was able to buy a home in Chicago in a predominantly immigrant neighborhood. Uh, Talk a little bit about the initial stages of her life and what it was like to be black at that time in Chicago. Well, Chicago was a deeply segregated city. And as African-Americans left the South and came north to Chicago, being considered one of the promised lands, there was no law barring them from any part of Chicago. But the realtors, the banks, and everyone conspired to keep African-Americans in in the area of South Side Chicago. And because they were excluded from economic life in Chicago, um, African-Americans in Chicago decided, well, we'll have a city within our city, and it was called Bronzeville. So they created their own banks, their own cosmetic companies, their own funeral parlors, their own taxi services, as well as their own newspapers. And that's the world that Chicago Defender came out of. And the reason this was so significant is if you were African-American in Chicago and your kid graduated from high school, you had a wedding, a funeral, any of those kinds of things that you and I take for granted that would appear in the newspaper, the Chicago Tribune was not going to carry them because you were black. So it created the economic basis for a newspaper like the Chicago Defender, which became very successful. So Ethel Payne was growing up in that world in Southside Chicago, but she had by four of luck, or she was very fortunate. She lived in an area called West Englewood, and she described it as an island surrounded by a sea of whiteness. Her few blocks was, uh, was at first you describe an immigrant community, but after the 1919 Chicago riot became universally black. But once she left those first few blocks, she was in white Chicago, and she could go to the white Chicago library, and she ended up going to white Chicago schools. And she suffered. I mean, kids threw stones at her when she went to school, and there was clearly, you know, racism all around her in her education. But she benefited from the better schools of Chicago, and that's one of the things that prepared her for her life. And secondly, I've not come up with a better term for this, but her experience in the white majority schools of Chicago made her fully bicultural in the sense that later, when she comes to Washington, she's very comfortable working in the white world, which she had to, whereas a child growing up deep in Southside Chicago might not have had those kind of acculturation effects that would have made them less well-equipped for the job that she was so well-equipped to do. You know, the other thing I love about your book is you weave in so much history. Can you talk about the Chicago riots of 1919 and how that affected her? Yeah, the Chicago riots in 1919 weren't unique to Chicago. Uh, the whole summer is called the Red Summer, and there have been books about the number of riots. And this repeats itself in 1943 and other moments. But this riot takes place because three kids, it's hot, and everyone goes to the beaches in Chicago, and the beaches are segregated. And three kids go to a, what they thought was a black be- beach on their little raft, and they drift down to the white beach. And somebody begins throwing rocks, and one of the kids gets hit by a rock and dies under the water. He drowns. And his body is brought to the shore. So you have uh, two black children alive, one dead black child on the shore, and all of this white crowd gathering around. And then the uh, black crowd comes down from the beach. There's an incident of violence, and it triggers several days of rioting in Chicago. And what happens is the white gangs realize it's now open season on African Americans, and they begin going through the black neighborhoods, shooting, burning. It's it's a really it's an act of um, I I can't call it revenge, but an act of of anger because... The, the black population coming to Chicago threatened the original white order. They were begin, you know, they were taking jobs, um, and whites were very angry, and they just let loose that summer. And Ethel Payne, as a young child, you know, exhibited—I mean, saw exhibited right on her street—the kind of anger that whites could manifest towards towards a black population. And I think that kind of scar remained with her her entire life, particularly when she went south. I mean, she would have she would go to homes of civil rights leaders who might still have burnt parts of their porch from a bomb. Um, You know, those kinds of memories, I'm sure, echoed in her mind when she became a reporter years later. When those riots happened, she was just eight years old. Oh, she was collecting. Uh, wonderful. I found a little diary entry. She was collecting bugs on the <laughs> front yard of her house and putting them in jars. She was quite a tomboy. She was not interested in dolls. <laughs> and the family was cooped up for days. And her father, who was then alive and was a Pullman porter, the train company would not let the Pullman porters get off in Chicago. 
Pullman porters were universally African-American, and the train company was worried that if any of them got off in Chicago and tried to get home, they'd get killed. So for several days, the family was alone until her father did manage to get off the train. He managed to sneak back in the neighborhood, and he had a confrontation in which he brought out his rifle and was ready to take defend his home. And it's quite remarkable, a white policeman uh, prevented him from doing it while at the same time chasing the whites out of the neighborhood that were threatening him. You, you also write about life for blacks, uh, just everyday life. Health care, even emergency care, was restricted. Only a few of the city's 77 hospitals would accept black patients and did so on a limited basis, leaving only the massive, overcrowded and understaffed Cook County Hospital and the African-American operated Provident Hospital to provide the bulk of medical care. Um, you write about how difficult it was to get a job. Uh, what else really struck you when you were doing this research? And, and I, you know, reading this book, I always I was wondering what was going through your mind when you're thinking about what we're dealing with today, and how these well, issues are it, getting more attention. Yes, they are, and they aren't. I mean, it's a really tough, uh, and this is where my race comes into play. Um, I interviewed a lot of Ethel Payne's friends. Now, these are friends she had late in life because, obviously, she died in 1991, so her earlier friends are long gone. And and most of her friends were African-American, and they were more than willing to give me an education in their world. But they also find it kind of cute that I would get outraged because this was what they'd grown up with. And so here was a white guy, in a sense, discovering this through documents and saying, this is incredible. How could people um, face this? And they would sort of pat me on the hand and say, you know, this is really cute to see you getting angry. So I didn't know how to write this in the sense that I knew that part of my readership, let's say an older African-American from Southside, would read it and just be nodding their head. Yeah, sure, I knew about the hospitals. But at the same time, the other part of my audience would need an education to this. And, you know, you asked the question at the beginning, and this is throughout the book, this notion of why is it we don't know about Ethel Payne? And what it is is that I don't think, you know, Selma's out. We've had horrible incidents last year. The conversation about race is certainly going on right now. But we really haven't often had a conversation about the legacy of segregation. And Ethel Payne's disappearance from the pages of history is part of that legacy in that she was well-known to 15% of Americans who read the Chicago Defender and read the black press or stuff was carried in other black newspapers, but unknown by whites. And it was this, this notion that she had to function in both worlds. She had no choice. If she wanted to succeed, she had to function in the black world and the white world. Whites have always reserved for them the, the right to remain in their homogeneous world and not be exposed to these things. And so 24 years after her death, I'm getting interviews and, and, um, and reviews that just talk about my discovery. And I'm really uncomfortable with that word because I'm not discovering her. She was there. It's my part of society who didn't know about her. And I hope my book will illuminate it for her, them. But it's not an act of discovery. And you say part of the reason is because at the time, whites were not reading the black press. And so while Ethel Payne, who I really want to point out, became a journalist at the age of 40, which I think is incredible. I mean, her byline was on the front page of the Chicago Defender on a regular basis. But whites didn't read the Chicago Defender at that time. Yeah, not only was her her byline, but the headlines often said, Ethel goes to Montgomery, Ethel sees pain. It's a, it's a very folksy style of journalism. And, you know, her work has not been added to collections of civil rights reporting. And it struck me, why not? And it dawned on me that part of the reason is that she, her work, as seen by historians, has also been misunderstood. Her readership was not very literate. I mean, keep in mind, in 1950, an African-American had a very small chance of getting a good education. So when she wrote, she had to keep in mind who was reading her work. She was much more like Ernie Pyle in World War II. Her letters were, her articles were almost folksy letters home, describing things in a very simple manner. It doesn't mean the issues were simple. It doesn't mean what she was covering was simple. But her style was unassuming and folksy. And as a result, when people have looked back, they don't think, oh, gee, this is a significant reporter like Anthony Lewis or somebody from the New York Times, but they're missing the point. She was significant because she was providing this critical information to an audience who needed it in a particular way, and that was her writing genius. Her journalistic genius was to recognize what was the story, and very often she was way ahead of the white press in that respect. 
But there is one great bit of white-black press cooperation that I love telling, particularly if we have listeners who like journalism. When the 55 Montgomery bus boycott got underway and became a national story, and white reporters came to Montgomery to begin covering it, and they still, you know, they were referring to Martin Luther King in print if they did as M. period L. period King. I mean, he was not a, a known figure. You can imagine the befuddlement that these white reporters would have when they'd go to a church meeting and people would get up in the pulpit and they would not say to their audience, hi, I'm Martin Luther King, because everybody in the audience knew who they were and knew who I was. So a white reporter would have to lean over to a black reporter and say, hey, who is that fellow up there in the pulpit? And in return, white reporters were able to get access to the sheriff department that the black reporters couldn't get. They, they wouldn't dare walk into the sheriff's department. So every day at a drugstore in Montgomery, white reporters and black reporters got together and they exchanged informations. information. So behind the scenes, material that black reporters were getting for the black press was beginning to appear in the white press. They weren't quoting them. They just would get the information and do a, a swap of material. James McGrath Morris is author of the new book, Eye on the Struggle, Ethel Payne, the First Lady of the Black Press. She became a trailblazing journalist at age 40. Her life as a civil rights activist and journalist has received very little attention beyond mentions and rare remembrances, although in 2002, the U.S. Postal Service selected Ethel Payne as one of four journalists it would honor on a commemorative postage stamp. What questions do you have about Ethel Payne? What do you think this says about what we remember? and don't remember about the civil rights era. Uh, Ethel Payne once said that as we struggle to send our children to college, we forget to tell them about our past. So what are your thoughts on that? You can give us a call at 866-798-8255, 866-798-8255. If you remember papers like the Chicago Defender, uh, the weekly circulation exceeded 50,000. As James McGrath Morris points out in his book, the actual number of readers was far greater Copies, said one reader, were passed around until worn out. African Americans in the South dared not receive the Defender through the U.S. mail. To do so would tip off watchful whites that they were reading the incendiary sheet banned by law in some communities. You can also email feedback at yourcallradio.org. So, James, tell us more about that. I mean, the Chicago Defender was very threatening to those not only in power, but as you write, people wouldn't even receive it uh, through mail. Well, there's a lovely connection between Ethel Payne and her dad. Her dad was a Pullman porter. And Pullman porters, as you point out, was one of the best-paying jobs for an African-American aside from the U.S. Postal Service. And what uh, most Americans forget is that business people traveled the nation in sleeping cars. We didn't have planes back then at the beginning of the 19th century. So if you were a businessman in New York and you needed to go to Chicago, you'd, you'd sleep across the country. And you were serviced by a group of professional blacks who would provide you with food, turn down service, and all those kinds of things. And those trains went everywhere. So one of the things that the Pullman porters did is they would take bundles of the Chicago Defender with them on their southern runs, and they would drop them off in towns, and these bundles would be taken to the barber shop because if you did not, as you point out, want to be visibly seen with the Chicago Defender because the Chicago Defender was chronicling the injustices in the South while reporting the good things that were happening in the North. And so these these um, weekly newspapers would end up in the barbershop. So when you came in to get your shave and your haircut on Saturday, you could pick up a copy of the Defender, put it inside your pocket, and get it home. And then it would be passed around to others. And if you've read Isabel Wilkinson's book, The Warmth of the Other Sun, Sons, you learn how significant this was. Because as a result, many African Americans in the South simply dropped their tools and headed north upon learning that while segregated and while still a lot of racism in the North, Chicago, Detroit, and all of those cities were really, for them, the promised land. And that's how her parents came. That's how succeeding generations came. And I love the fact that she ended up working for the paper that her father probably would have carried into the South. Hmm. You write a poem that the Defender made popular, exclaimed, I'll bid the South goodbye. No longer shall they treat me so and knock me in the eye. The northern states is where I'm bound. We're talking about the new book, Eye on the Struggle, by James McGrath Morris. And we'll be back after this. You're listening to Your Call on KALW Local Public Radio. To take part in today's conversation, call 866-798-8255. That's toll-free 
T-A-L-K. Let us know if you're a first-time caller, and we always like to hear from new voices. And if you'd prefer to write rather than call, you can email feedback at yourcallradio.org or leave a comment at yourcallradio.org. KLW is supported by listeners like you and Lisa Lucetta and Richard Vaterhaus of Alameda and Janet and Roger Ash of Cincinnati, Ohio. That's awesome. Thank you. Make a secure online pledge at klw.org, and thank you. This is your call. I'm Rose Aguilar. Coming up tomorrow, we continue our series on police, community, race, and justice by speaking with family members who have lost loved ones, family members whose loved ones have been shot and killed by police. We'll talk about their experiences with the legal system, the media, and their communities. What changes would they like to see? And when it comes to changing policies, do they feel like their voices are being heard? That is tomorrow. And if you have a show idea or a guest idea, you can drop us a line, feedback at your callradio.org. Today I am joined by James McGrath Morris. He's out with a new book, Eye on the Struggle, Ethel Payne, the First Lady of the Black Press. Ethel Payne was a trailblazing journalist and civil rights activist. She was on the front lines of the civil rights movement. If you haven't heard of her, you're not alone. Unfortunately, she hasn't received much attention, but luckily we have this new book out. And so now she has is receiving the accolades she deserves. You can find more information about her at yourcallradio.org. And if you'd like to join us, the toll-free number is 866-798-8255. You can also email feedback at yourcallradio.org. James McGrath-Morris is a biographer, columnist, and radio show host. His last book is Pulitzer, A Life in Politics, Print, and Power. And let's hear from KDF in Oakland. Hi, KDF. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Rose. I really appreciate you taking my call. Mr. McGrath-Morris, I can only say thank you. When those stamps came out and I bought them, um, I I can't use the computing because of my neurological condition, so I had to ask my brother to look her up. And um, he comes back and he says, well, there's nothing about her. And I said, no, there has to be something about her because she's on a stamp now. And he said, well, I can't find anything. There's no book or anything. So (laughs) thank you very, very much for writing the book that I was looking for when the stamps came out. What a wonderful story because, you know, the stamps are really symbolic of this. There are four women chosen for these stamps. Three of them were white and one was African-American. All three whites have had several books written about them and none about Ethel Payne. So it's really fascinating that you two were struck by that when you saw the stamps come out as a commemorative set. And that they came out in 2002, that stamp. And so, yes. so KDF, did you just buy them randomly? No. Um, I, I, um, because I was involved with the West Coast Women's Press Plexus, for 13 years, you know, that was the a feminist newspaper of record of the second wave. Um, I'm always looking for uh, women's history things. And um, I would also like to mention to your audience, Rising from the Rails, that's a fantastic book, too, because uh, Mr. McGrath-Morris was just talking about how important... Uh, the uh, situation of, you know, being a Pullman porter was in the black community. That's a terrific book. That's a really great book. All right. Well, thank you for calling in, KDF. Um, James, do you want to talk about how Ethel ultimately became a journalist? Because she started working for the Chicago Defender when she was 40. And up until that point, she had different jobs. She was a librarian. She tried to get a job in D.C., but Blush. They weren't going to hire her. They weren't going to hire her because she's black. And is it true that when they she... Were, they were willing to say that, too. Right. When she applied, they didn't know she was black until she turned up? Yeah. Yeah. She faced every barrier that a black woman would face in the 30s and 40s trying to get a professional job. Eight out of ten Af- African-American women employed in Chicago were employed as domestic servants. It didn't matter what kind of education she had. But she was very fortunate. A number of incidents happened. And you're right. She became a journalist at age 41, which was really comforting for me because my father used to refer to me as a late bloomer. And it's nice to write about somebody who, who had a, a career later in life. But what happened was that in 1940, she went to, I mean, sorry, 1948, she went to Japan, occupied Japan, to work as a service club hostess. The military in Japan was segregated, so they hired blacks and they hired whites to staff these service clubs where members of the military could go to hear music, have American food, and you know be back home without being home. 
And she she had that, as I told you, that writerly bug, that journalistic bug. So in her downtime, she explored Japan. She took notes. She she had the courage to knock on doors of, of uh, elected officials and all kinds of things. But she had no place to publish it. So she kept a, 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 her set of copious notes in her diary. And one of the things she observed was fraternization between African-American soldiers and Japanese women. Now, this is a big deal because, you know, in the United States, a black man could only date a black woman, and by law could certainly in many states not even... Uh, be, you know, have any relationship with a white woman. And so the idea of cross-race dating was in of itself a volatile thing. Granted that white soldiers were also fraternizing with Japanese women, this didn't have the same issue. Secondly, as a result of these relationships, there were babies being born. And this was really a problem from Japan, a homogeneous society that's very xenophobic. These babies were unwanted because they were of mixed race. They were often killed or abandoned. So orphanages began to fill up with what were nicknamed the Brown babies. So she was keeping notes on this in her diary. The Korean War broke out, and reporters from the United States came to cover it, including reporters from the Chicago Defender and other newspapers, like Al- Alex Wilson, who came from Chicago Defender. The only way you could get to Korea to cover the war was to come through Japan. That was the gateway. That's where the command were. That's where General MacArthur was. So they met Payne, and they learned about her story. She began to feed them information about the state of life for African-American soldiers. And one of them, Alec Wilson, got the permission to take her diary, send them back to the Chicago Defender, who edited them and shaped them into a news story with a lead. And so for two succeeding weeks, there was a headline on the paper with the byline with her name. Well, this, of course, completely freaked out the central administration in Japan who wanted to attract no attention to the racial issues they were dealing with in Korea. Korea was a segregated war. Black troops were fighting separate from white troops at the beginning of the war. And so they shunted um, Ethel Payne off to a little desk somewhere in the headquarters, took her away from her job. And had not a very famous journalist showed up on, I mean, lawyer showed up on the scene, she would have been dismissed and, in a sense, dishonorably and had a really hard time getting a job when she came back to the States. But Thurgood Marshall happened to be on the scene to fight for the rights of black soldiers who were being court martialed at an extraordinary rate. He took up her cause. The military decided just to let her go. Uh, she was on her way back to the United States, and the Chicago Defender said, hey, We'll offer you a job. I mean, realizing in part they'd caused her to lose her job, but also realizing Ethel Payne had what it took. And when she became a reporter with the Chicago Defender, she did a lot of in-depth reporting. And one of her pieces was a follow-up to that story. She wrote about a lot of the you know black children who were not being adopted. And because of that story people started flocking to these children. I mean, so she had such an impact on she, the people reading she, the paper. She did. She she resumed that story about uh, black babies in Chicago. And one of the things that I was amazed at is if you adopted a child back then and you discovered after the fact that that child might have 1% African-American blood in them, <laughs> you could go back to the orphanage like with a car and return the child for not being pure white. So the black children, orphans, really had a very tough time in Chicago. And what she discovered by this kind of reporting is something most of us as journalists discover, that simply merely illuminating the dark recesses of society can bring about change. You know, when we decide to write or cover about poverty or or issues of health care and things like that, just merely pointing these things out can trigger change. And that was certainly her experience in Chicago, as you point out. Right. You also point out that her reporting grew aggressive and her writing took on an explanatory tone. The line between journalism and advocacy blurred. Looking back years later, Payne offered an explanation. She said, quote, if you've lived through through the black experience in this country, you feel that every day you're assaulted by the system itself. You're either acquiescent and you go along with the system, which I think is wrong, or else you just rebel and you kick against it. That was just my feeling that somebody had to do the fighting. Somebody had to speak up. So I saw myself as an advocate as much as being a newspaper person, end quote. Can you talk about that? Yeah, I mean, that, I, I marvel listening to you because, of course, I put that quote in the book, but at times I forget how, how uh, eloquently reflective she was about her, her work. I, it's trite to say this, but Ethel Payne could never cease being black. And that at, in that period of the United States, it mattered a lot more than it does today, even though race is still very important. And so whether it was writing about 
the black orphans in Chicago or whether it was confronting the president, she remained part of the story. As I've described um, or have even mentioned this morning, you know, in Washington, D.C. in 1950s, this is a segregated city. Merely getting a cab in the morning to go to the White House to ask the president a question was a challenge. So she could never forget who she was and how she uses the word, this word, how she was part of the problem. She was part of what the civil rights movement was all about. So she abandoned the kinds of um, sense that we have of objectivity and instead took on this notion of fairness. And that's one of the changes that took place when she realized she couldn't just be another reporter. Again, what was going through your your mind when you think about where we are today with journalism? Uh, Because Ethel Payne, and I'm not exactly sure when she said this, but maybe you can let us know. She said, somehow the black press has forgotten how to agitate for the purposes for which it was found. Uh, and ten years after she said that, she told a student, the black press can be a formidable instrument for change if it just realizes its potential, its responsibility, its past, and if it lives up to that credo because the fight is far from over. Yeah, but I think Ethel Payne, in a sense, was too close to that subject. She failed to see the economic demise of the African-American press. As we spoke earlier in the show, there was, there was money to be made when the white press excluded African-Americans. But after the success of the segregation, of desegregation and the civil rights movement, um, what happened was they, they wrote their own ticket to exploration in that um, in the Washington Post, for instance, you could find a coverage of black high school sports. You could find black reporters being hired. In fact, they were picking the best reporters from the black press. You could have all of those kinds of things. And as a result, most of the, 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 the economic power of the black press was undercut. And as you know, journalism is an expensive enterprise. So Ethel Payne's view, and she did fight for it and tried to find foundation money and tried to come up with different ways, that to maintain an advocacy press that represented the interests of African Americans without an economic basis for it um, was was impossible. And in a sense, it also mirrors a larger story about Ethel Payne, which was that time passed her by. You know, she wrote these stories in the 50s and then in the 60s, and when the black press began to go downhill economically and white newspapers and TV networks were hiring African Americans, including her. She was ended up on CBS Evening News doing commentary, CBS News, not Evening News, doing commentary. Um, She became regarded as an iconic figure as opposed to a current journalist. And she was in a way shunted off. In fact, she went to a black caucus meeting uh, for a fundraiser in which the guards had no idea who she was and told her to move. And so the end of her life, she kind of um, uh, had a shrinking beat. She self-syndicated her her columns, often couldn't get paid because the newspapers, the black newspapers, didn't have much money. And um, she was surrounded and loved by a coterie of wonderful women for, women who, for whom she'd been a, an important mentor. But she became an icon as opposed to a journalist. James McGrath Morris is a biographer who's who's written a new book called Eye on the Struggle, Ethel Payne, the First Lady of the Black Press. She was a trailblazing journalist and civil rights activist. She became a journalist at age 40. We don't have that much information about her. She's received a little bit of attention over the years. After her death in 91, a Washington Post editorial noted that had Ethel Payne not been black, she certainly would have been one of the most recognized journalists in American society. So if you've got any questions for James about Ethel Payne and what he learned about her life and the civil rights movement, the power of the press back then. If you remember anything uh, by reading maybe black papers back then or how the media covered the civil rights struggle, we'd love to hear from you. 866-798-8255. 866-798-8255. Ethel was one of the few blacks, especially black women, at White House press conferences when she would ask tough questions. She's known for asking, well, at least now she's known for asking uh, President Eisenhower if he's going to support desegregation. You can email feedback at yourcallradio.org. We have an email from a listener, Mary Jane, who says, I so appreciate your humility and honesty, and especially your disavowal of, quote, discovering Ethel Payne. Uh, She wonders if uh, Ethel Payne was received or supported by members of the male black press. Did she have colleagues? What about white female journalists? 
That's an interesting question. Um, Ethel Payne was a very, very private woman, and she had some difficult personal things that happened to her that caused her to become very private. Um, she did have support in the White House press corps, for instance, from two different groups. There was a there were two black reporters in the White House press corps when she arrived. One was a male who was a Republican, and he tended not to be an agitator. The other is Alice Dunningham, who uh, is well-known and was a trailblazer. In many ways, Ethel Payne was standing on her shoulders. And uh, Alice and she often worked together and in terms of coming up with questions and getting support. But James Foliard, a Washington Post white reporter, when Ethel Payne began asking these first questions and then felt like the spotlight was on her, he was one of the first to come over to her and say, you know, these are the questions we should have been asking. And I think as a whole, um, white reporters at that time uh, were much more sympathetic to the goal of the civil rights movement. So I don't think it's entirely fair to presume that the White House press corps was racist, but instead they were clueless. Mm-hmm. They didn't. They didn't. In, they didn't bump into these things. They didn't. As I said, they lived in their white world. So their questions were about the McCarthy hearings, about foreign policy, whereas Ethel's questions were representative of her readership. So in that sense, I don't think they took any umbrage in her asking those questions. As journalists, they understood it. Right, and also but, uh, you write that they almost was, forced her to pay attention because when she would make presidents uncomfortable, that would then turn into a story. Oh, yeah. I mean, the, the headlines would be, you know, reporter irks Ike. Um, so, you know, they, they, like any reporter, they saw a story within the story and covered it. The, the part about her being black and female that I really angsted over and felt sad for her is that she could never find a relationship that might have sustained her in, in the more difficult moments. It, she was really off-putting to males, particularly African-Americans in the 1950s, as a professional, aggressive, and accomplished woman. Okay. And by her own admission at the end of her life, she says, you know, I really ended up being married to my career. And I, at first I thought, how sad. I have children, and I think children are, are a wonderful thing to have. And she didn't have children, and I thought maybe I'm just being you know, a sexist pig and thinking every woman's life is better with a child. Please don't believe that. But what I discovered is that the women she mentored ended up being family. And as a researcher, I was thoroughly confused because I would meet these women, and they would refer to themselves as their, as her niece or that she was their aunt and that she'd left a note at the front desk of the hotel of the of the, her apartment please let my niece come in and i thought i've done the genealogy who are these people it turns out that's how close their relationships were that they ended up thinking of her as their aunt and she ended up thinking of their niece so in no way should we presume that the fact that she couldn't have that personal romantic relationship or not have children that she was in any way bereft of company at the end of her life she was deeply loved by the women around her mm-hmm. She never married, but she did have a few partners. She did, right. and she left one behind. She had a fiancé who I only know the first name of. It's, I'm not hiding anything. That's as close as I could get in my research, that she left when she went to Japan, and he decided not to wait for her. And she, she, she loved life. I mean, she went out with people, but, again, establishing a long-term relationship was just not part of her life. Hmm. James McGrath-Morris is author of Eye on the Struggle, Ethel Payne, the First Lady of the Black Press. And let's go to another caller. Let's hear from Sheila and Oak. Hi, Sheila. Welcome to the show. Oh, thank you very much. A very interesting book. I wanted to ask the author about um, the, the, uh, Ada B. Wells, who was a predecessor of Ethel Payne, and she certainly covered the lynchings in the South in that era. That would have been before the 1920s, uh, during that era, and the Scottsboro case. And she had her own newspaper um, that she founded, and she was in Chicago. She had come from Mississippi, I think, up to Tennessee, and then to Chicago. And I was wondering, do you think that uh, Elka Payne was aware of uh, what Ida B. Wells had done? You know, she was really a trailblazer in journalism and owned her own newspaper until it was burned down by, you know, whites. Yo, Sheila, it's a really good question. Oh, yeah, no, she is. Uh, She's an immensely important figure. And Ethel Payne knew of her. I never found anything where she actually uh, ended up seeing her. You know, I can only go based on the evidence. But she was clearly aware of her work. And Ida B. Wells uh, took far more personal risks than than I I don't want to diminish 
the risks that Ethel Payne took going into the South, but the risks that Ida B. Wells took were enormous. And in some ways, um, Ethel Payne, in my eye, is kind of the 20th century version of it, inspired by Ida B. Wells's uh, work. And in fact, I'm going to be speaking at a conference, uh, an Ida B. Wells conference uh, next month in, in uh, Kentucky, about the notion that Ethel Payne's work is in many ways built on the shoulders of her. And you know, that's been the case in every part of the civil rights movement. And that's why I think the movie Selma is so important. It's not an issue of whether LBJ is in the movie favorably portrayed. What's so important about the movie and what's so important about books like mine, and I'm not saying that sounds egotistical. What I mean, it's this, this genre of books about writing about lesser-known people, is that the civil rights movement and the reporting that Ida B. Wells and people like that did was done by by the lesser-knowns, the, the soldiers of the movement. And if we lose sight that everyday people risk their lives to inform each other, to activate each other, to protest these things, mm-hmm. we create a generation of children who are waiting for the next Martin Luther King without realizing that it's within their power to rise up. Some young woman today could rise up to become a journalist like Ethel Payne confront those barriers, but if she's waiting for the Ethel, the, the more famous leaders to come about, it won't happen. Hmm. So yes, uh, Ida B. Wells was an important part of, of Ethel Payne's life, even if they never met. She knew of her growing up in Chicago, not far from, you know, she would have known of her home. She was a leading figure, and she certainly knew of her work. I love that comment, James, because you point out that uh, Ethel Payne was on the front lines of so many of these seminal moments. For example, the bus boycotts belonged to the black press. She was right there. Uh, the New York Times, the Washington Post, all those papers relied on wire copy when these black journalists were in the South covering this story. She was one of the first reporters to also write about uh, the religious community uh, getting involved and becoming activists. Yeah, that, that to my mind is one of her most significant moments as a journalist. And just because the world didn't know she had made this discovery shouldn't in any way diminish it. But the civil rights movement had been historically led by people like Frederick Douglass in the 19th century, labor leaders like A. Philip Randolph, and then legal leaders like Thurgood Marshall who were using the courts. The 55 bus boycott is when the leadership of the civil rights movement moved to the clergy. People like Ralph Abernathy and Martin Luther King were, you know, priests. I mean, and it was an important part of understanding what was happening in the, the birth of the nonviolent resistance. And she was the first to notice that and report about it. Um, and that, to my mind, is an example of her incredible journalistic perception to not only be early on the scene, but to realize what a momentous change is taking place. Well, thank you again for calling, Sheila. We have an email from a listener who writes, I'm truly thankful our history is being shared, but what is never discussed is the lack of justice. Black history in this country runs over with strife and trauma. Nazi war criminals are still being brought to justice to this day, yet when we look at the atrocities that occurred in the black community, nothing is done. Cases of innocence are overturned, but there's no compensation like any other legal case. It's found out someone was killed in police custody, no justice. The government apologized, side what occurs still affects blacks until this day. But again, what's being done? And she keeps repeating, with all this information, what is being done with it? What are your thoughts on that, James? Oh, I'm speechless. Um, it's really an intractable problem, and it's not unique to us. I mean, look at what happened in South Africa when apartheid ended. The first question is, how do you establish justice? Do you seek everyone who enforced laws that we now know are morally repugnant? Um, and I don't. I have no clue as to the answer. And I'm not sure, you know, studying Ethel Payne, uh, what kind of answer she would give, because one of the questions you have is after a group of the popula- uh, population is liberated or or begins to achieve some form of equality, how much retribution and justice do you do for the past or do you move forward? And and I'm just, as I say, speechless to answer that question. I don't mean to sound like a politician punting. I just don't know what the answer is. Hmm. Uh, we have a couple minutes left. How difficult was it for you to piece together this history? Because you wrote a fascinating article for Al Jazeera America a couple years ago called U.S. Government Secrecy Making Historical Research Difficult. 
Well, the government since 9-11 has been closing the doors in all kinds of documents, including historic documents that go back 60 years. And I fought to get her FBI file because the FBI did look at African Americans like her as a danger and maintained files on them. I got a, a redacted file, meaning that everything that was of value was blackened out. So it's just a sheet where her name might be and a couple little things. So I pursued appealing that all the way to the top levels. I was denied uh, my appeal at each level. But there's deep irony in this. They didn't really pay attention. And when they sent me my final denial, the version of the files they sent me had a lot more material than the original material. So in a sense, I prevailed. It was hard. It's also hard because, frankly, records of African Americans are not being as well kept as records of white folks. So these black archives at Howard University or in New York are struggling financially to be able to process and preserve these important documents so others can come and write these stories about other people. And if we don't address that, an important part of history will be lost. Mark Block, the famous historian, said that history is written by the light of the victor's campfire. If we don't preserve these kinds of documents, that question that that, that uh, writer raised about justice and, and finding the kind of uh, just society we want, we won't be able to write that story. Hmm. You've got a photo of a redacted document in your piece, and uh, so much of it is missing. It's just bl- uh, blank boxes. Yeah, and it's the kind of thing that Ethel Payne would have just been so annoyed at, this notion that something that's truly harmless in some respects is being held back from the public. And that's the age that we're living in now. Governments are just panicked about what kinds of documents they can share with us. And it's going to make it increasingly hard to write these kinds of stories. Hmm. Uh, James, we've got about a minute left. Final thoughts. I mean, thank you so much for writing this book because it's amazing to read about all of her contributions. And again, I love that she became a journalist at the age of 40 and made such a mark. Well, it's two things. It's an honor to be able to talk about her work. And what I've considered this book the most important book I have done. And the reason being that she deserves a moment in, in, in the light of history. And if my research ability and my writing gives it to her, I really don't care if the book financially supports me. I feel like I'll finished my career by doing something socially worthwhile. James McGrath Morris is a biographer, columnist, and radio show host. His new book is Eye on the Struggle. That's E-Y-E. I just had a listener write in and say he searched I and he couldn't find it. It's it's I-E-Y-E on the Struggle. Ethel Payne, the first lady of the black press. She was a tireless civil rights activist and journalist. She's received very little attention beyond mentions and rare remembrances. In 1991, a Washington Post editorial noted that had Ethel Payne not been black, she certainly would have been one of the most recognized journalists in American society. James, thank you so much for joining us, and thanks for giving Ethel Payne a voice. Thank you. Thank you. And thanks for listening. I'm Rose Aguilar. It's your call. What happens when a loved one is shot and killed by police? On the next Your Call, we'll continue our series on police, community, race, and justice by speaking with family members who've lost loved ones. We'll talk about their experiences with the legal system, the media, and their communities. What changes would they like to see? And when it comes to policies, do they feel like their voices are being heard? What questions do you have for family members? It's Your Call with me, Rose Aguilar, and you. Support for Your Call comes from the listeners of KALW. To listen to past shows or sign up for our podcast, visit yourcallradio.org. Knock Wynn produces the show, Malihe Razazan is senior producer, and Matt Martin is executive producer. Phil Hartman is our chief engineer, and Kevin Vance is our studio engineer. Our theme music was composed and performed by Live Human. Special thanks to our partners at KUSP in Santa Cruz. You can email us at feedback at yourcallradio.org.